Hello and welcome to The Sidebar presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, November 10th, 2023. In this week's episode, a woman facing murder and theft charges for allegedly killing an elderly family friend with six bottles of Visine eye drops before absconding with over a quarter of a million dollars. Also in the ongoing Caitlin Armstrong trial, the pro cyclist at the center of the fatal love triangle takes the stand in his ex-girlfriend's murder trial for the shooting death of the man's former mistress. But first, last week, the jury reached a verdict in the murder-for-hire trial of a dentist who orchestrated a plot to murder his ex-brother-in-law so his sister could gain full custody of the former couple's children. Today, we are joined by Joel Waldman, a Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist and founder of Content Partners Media. Joel is a legal analyst and co-host of the true crime podcast, Surviving the Survivor. Joel, welcome. Josh, great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And already in the first uh, 30 seconds, I can tell you're more talented than 97% of the people I worked with for 25 plus years in broadcast news. So maybe uh, you missed your calling, but uh, you're an awesome uh, attorney as well. So, oh, well, I I really appreciate that. I'm going to I'm going to save that moment, send it to my wife. <laughs> But uh, I've had the pleasure on of being on your podcast uh, a couple of times now. Always an interesting conversation. Always really interesting guests as well. And I know uh, that you now have dedicated a large part of your day to following these cases, including going down to Tallahassee, Florida, for the Charles Allison trial. Is that right? Yeah, that is true. So. Uh... Like most things in my life, I kind of stumbled onto this, but uh, I'm obviously my, my career was in broadcast news. And uh, when COVID started, I kind of had a uh, funny idea to start a podcast with my 84 year old mother, who is a Holocaust survivor, hence the title Surviving the Survivor. But we um, ultimately found the Dan Markell story. He is an FSU law professor murdered back in 2014 by two now convicted hitmen and a middle woman uh, who was convicted. And just uh, earlier this week or last week, I think, uh, Charlie Adelson, the ex-brother-in-law, was convicted in this case. And so we actually did travel to Tallahassee and covered it extensively. And I can tell you, Josh, and you know this firsthand uh, through your own podcast, there is a real you know, hunger and a thirst for covering these sorts of cases. So it is something that we're going to continue to do in the future. And, you know, you're in the courtroom all the time. I'm there when I was covering cases in the past, but I'd never really been at a murder trial, sort of gavel to gavel. I wasn't there for the complete trial, but uh, the meat of it. And it was fascinating to watch play out. Good. I, I'm so glad to hear that. That's a part of the reason I've been looking forward to this interview with you, uh, because it's rare that we get someone who was able to sit through these trials. So just to catch everybody who's listening up with with what's going on, this is out of Tallahassee, Florida. We're talking about Charles Adelson was convicted on all counts for his part in the 2014 plot that left Florida State law professor Dan Markell dead in his driveway. Adelson allegedly orchestrated the killing with his former girlfriend, Catherine McBanois. Adelson maintained that he had not issued 
payment for a a hit, but instead that he was the victim of a blackmailing scheme at the hands of the men who killed Markel. McBanois, who served as the middleman between Adelson and the killers, as you were saying, was sentenced to life for enlisting the help of Sigfredo Garcia, the father of her children and the triggerman of the hit on Markel. Markel's killing was allegedly spurred by a custody dispute between his ex-wife, Adelson's sister, Wendy Adelson. As you can already tell, lots of moving parts going on here, lots of characters involved. That's why I'm glad that you can help us unwind some of this. Adelson opted to take the stand in his own defense, his first public attempt to tell the his side of the story. However, his testimony apparently bore little weight with the jury. The former dentist was convicted on charges of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and solicitation to commit murder. First degree murder, the, the first degree murder charge alone carries a mandatory life sentence. Adelson is sentenced, is scheduled, pardon me, to be formally sentenced December 12th. All right. I guess the, my first question is, is like you said, being in a courtroom during a murder trial is hard to explain to people the atmosphere, the tension. What tell us what was it like you actually being there and hearing some of this testimony? What was the what were the feelings inside of the courtroom? Well, you know, as a former broadcast journalist, you know, you're really a paid professional observer. And uh, for full disclosure, I am the son of a psychiatrist and my mother's a licensed therapist. So I really grew up in a world where I, I was a people watcher. And I think that's what drew me to journalism. So in the courtroom, you know, you just got that unusual vantage point where you're looking at everyone the judge the jurors the bailiffs the gallery um and it was just such a interesting perspective but i was really kind of honing in on the jurors and i could tell uh just a day or two in that these jurors did not like charlie adelson and one of the questions that kept coming up and josh you can understand this better than most um, we have a guy named Tim Jansen, who is a very well-known criminal defense attorney out of Tallahassee. Uh, they could have hired the family, the defendant, Charlie Adelson, could have hired him. Instead, they chose to hire a white-collar criminal defense attorney out of Miami. Charlie Adelson's a, a Jewish guy. The, attorney, the defense attorney was a Jewish guy. I am Jewish, so I'm saying this, uh, you know, very openly. Instead of going with a Tallahassee-based attorney that probably would have played much better to the jurors. And I could just tell that they were both like fish out of water in a Tallahassee courtroom. And obviously the jurors are going to look at the evidence because that is what they're instructed to do. That's their job. And I could tell they were taking it really seriously. But at the end of the day, the defense attorney and the defendant just didn't fit in there. And I could feel that and I could see that in a way that you can't when you're watching, let's say, court TV or a trial on another network. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up that point about it's great that we have cameras inside of courtrooms. It's great that we're able to observe these things, but you're still getting only what the camera presents to you. You know, if that's how the witness is doing and the camera's just fixed on that witness or the, the prosecutor, whoever's examining them, but it's it, there's so much more going on, as you explained, the the nuance of how jurors are reacting, how the courtroom is reacting, how the judge might be reacting and is not on camera during some of those shots. As it, it, when I was a prosecutor or and as a defense attorney, you're paying attention to all of that because you're trying to read the room, especially those 12 people over on the side. 
Are they paying attention? Is this is this getting to them? Is this scoring points with them? So I'm so glad to hear from someone who was sitting there to get that perspective of, I, you know, that's something that I've, I didn't realize bringing in this Miami lawyer, how that might've been received by the Tallahassee jurors. Were you in, were you in court when Adelson actually te- testified? Yeah, I was. Um, the difficult Tell part about, about that. that. Yeah. He, uh, he speaks softly, uh, very confident. Um, he, he actually performed really well, but again, Josh, uh, you know, this better than most as a criminal defense attorney, I think the problem, ironically, that hurt him is he was too smooth. Uh, This is a guy who had maestro written on his license plate. He drove Ferraris. He liked fast cars, fast women, dated strippers. Uh, He lived a fast life. He was he was dealing steroids. Uh, There were wiretaps that were played of him, uh, not in court this time around, but there are wiretaps that exist of him dealing steroids. So, you know, he kind of pushed the line uh most of his life he would get out of speeding tickets by saying he was an er doctor at the local hospital instead of telling the truth that he was just a dentist because he knew that er doctors could get out of tickets so you you know wiretaps painted a better picture but in court he was incredibly smooth but almost too smooth at one point mm-hmm. uh, when he was being cross-examined he sort of slipped and said oh yeah that's on page 25 and i think the gallery and the jurors at that moment realized he's had over a year in jail and nine years since this murder was committed to rehearse the story. And it was a cockamamie defense, a double extortion plot from the Latin Kings who let him pay in installments. I mean, it was an insane uh, defense theory that was uh, put forward here. And I think when they saw that he had an answer for absolutely everything, that he was a little too slick. It kind of played into this whole con man side of him. And I think that ultimately hurt him, even though he performed well on the stand. It's funny. Yeah, I th- I thought he did well also. I mean, I and maybe some of that smoothness was lost on me watching it through the television rather than being there in court. But I thought when I was watching it, I watched it live that you know this he did seem to have all the answers he did seem prepared and he he did uh present i thought at least a an air of authenticity that it, it, you could tell that he was just trying to tell the truth now you can still maintain that and be lying through your teeth but he d- did seem to at least have the demeanor down rehearsed well uh in addition to the words that he was saying but you, you you mentioned the their defense is this kind of convoluted plot. And I'm curious as to how, because when I was watching it, it all seemed to be building up to this one point where he is finally, according to him, confronted by Meg Banois about she knows who killed uh, the, the professor. And by the way, you need to pay these guys some money or otherwise they're going to, I don't know what, kill you. Uh, you know, ruin your life, whatever it is. And the part that got me was it sounded like within minutes of hearing that he goes to the safe and gives her $138,000 in cash and says, okay, just go take her this. It just, the believability of everything he may have said before then just seemed to fall off a cliff. What was the reaction inside the courtroom to that moment? Uh, Basically exactly what you said. Uh, Everyone's jaws were agape, uh, if you will, so it's a very, very convoluted story. But the long story short is Charlie Adelson despised his 
brother-in-law, Dan Markell, who was the murder victim, as did his mother, Donna Adelson. And he was in a horrific marriage and they were going through a divorce. So the defense theory was two basically street thugs, one a Latin king from Miami, are for some reason going to drive seven and a half hours from Miami up to Tallahassee to get rid of the one person that Charlie Adelson and Donna Adelson and Wendy Adelson want gone when they didn't know an address, they didn't know who this guy was. The only way it could have been um, done was if the Adelson family afforded these street thugs the information to give to them. So it was just an implausible theory all around. And then Charlie Adelson, who's a tough guy, is dating this middle woman. Her name is Katie McBanawa. They allegedly extort, you know, for a million dollars and let him pay a third of that, but a portion of the third. So it just gets so convoluted. And then he gives Charlie Adelson gives Katie McBanawa allegedly this $138,000, but lets her sleep over. And then you find out there's text messages for months to follow where they're, you know, calling each other, you know, baby names and sweet names. And this is supposedly the woman who's extorting him. It just made no sense. But look, the defense attorney had to come up with a theory. This is what they came up with. Another defense attorney I heard uh, said, look, it would have been a much better theory to say he did hire them. They went up there just to rough them up. And these Latin King guys, you know, took took matters into their own hands. Maybe it'd be a different story for Charlie Adelson, but that defense theory just didn't add up. Yeah. Yeah. Many times, uh, I, you know, I'll be talking to people about these cases and they'll just be attacking the ridiculousness of the defense theory. And like, how in the world can they stand up there and say, blah, blah, blah. Well, what else are they going to do, folks? I mean, they got to stand up and say something. And when you're dealing with someone with a mountain of evidence against them, sometimes your theory is not going to sound all of that, all that great. So I, I respect the fact that they got to stand up and make an argument. But you're right. I, and I'm glad you point that out. That's an interesting way they could have gone too. is that, hey, yeah, you, you, all of this is correct. And I admit all of that. There was a lot of scheming and planning and everything else. But these guys took it way too far. And you know what? You know, it. this guy was just a dentist, right? I know you point out he lives this fast lifestyle, but it's. it seems like you're going, it's a far stretch from getting out of speeding tickets to murder for hire. And I think that was something they could have presented to jurors is that why in the world would this guy do this? But obviously, whatever they did uh, didn't seem to hold a lot of water with the jurors. And they've now convicted him. And this is now, what, three people that have been convicted. Um, pardon me, four people that have been convicted. Four. He's a fourth. Right. And there's there's some really thick irony here. Number one, Charlie Adelson is now stuck in the exact place that his mother wanted her. grand. It, it all revolved around the grandchildren. She wanted her grandchildren out of Tallahassee um, and the FSU law professor Dan Markell couldn't move because he had this law job. So, you know, now her son is stuck in Tallahassee. And I had a former chapter leader of the Latin King gang on my podcast just the other oh, night, wow. which was fascinating. And he said the first thing that's going to happen to Charlie in state prison, besides being confronted, uh, they basically beat you up when you first get in there to see if you can, you know, tough enough to fight back. And the second thing that's going to happen to him is he's going to get extorted. 
which is exactly what his defense theory was, that he was extorted by the Latin King gang. And now it's going to happen for real. Uh, and now Donna, which you might want to get to the mother, it, it looks like she's next in line and could be indicted. So this is a, a long saga and it's not over yet. Wow. You think so? You think there's more indictments uh, uh, heading our way? Yeah. So we've had a lot of you know big name legal analysts on our show. And the collective thought is not only will Donna Adelson get indicted because there's so much momentum and she's caught on so many wiretaps uh, saying incriminating things. But she's going to be indicted very soon, possibly even wow. before Thanksgiving. Uh, they believe that the feds have eyes on her or local law enforcement. She's a 73 year old woman, uh, but she's really believed to be the puppet master, the string puller and all this. Just blows my mind that these people that on paper, you think they're just these law abiding folks kind of living their you know privileged lives. But the idea that they would take it upon themselves to kill someone over something like that is just staggering to me. Well, we will obviously stay tuned. We will keep our eyes and ears open for any indictments and his sentencing is gonna come up in a couple of weeks here and we'll keep you all updated. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder every episode features special guests twists turns and the mystery of a missing co-host available on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts let's turn to Pewaukee, wisconsin where the state has rested their case in the trial of a woman accused of murdering a family friend using six bottles of visine eye drops and subsequently stealing the victim's money Prosecutors allege that Jesse Kershevsky poisoned Lynn Hernan with eye drops in an effort to gain over $290,000. Meanwhile, Kershevsky's defense opened their case by asking for a dismissal of the charges, insisting the state had not provided sufficient evidence to suggest Kershevsky's intent to kill Hernan. The motion was roundly rejected by the judge who cited previous interviews between police and Kershevsky in which she admitted handling, handing the victim a water bottle filled in part with eye drops on the day of her death. Kershevsky's defense has asserted that Hernan was suicidal due to her, her declining health. The 62-year-old Hernan was found dead with a mound of crushed up medication on her chest and a plate nearby. Opting not to take the stand in her own defense, Kershevsky's attorneys rested their case after presenting testimony from a toxicologist who calculated that Hernan ingested nearly 30 pills before her death, a feat that would have been impossible after consuming the eye drops. Prosecutors promptly began their rebuttal in the case, offering a differing opinion from, from another toxicologist. The trial is ongoing with jury del deliberations set to begin in the time you're hearing this. Joel, this is so bizarre. I mean, we and I don't use that lightly. We talk about a lot of bizarre cases on this show, but I've never I, I admit even before this, I didn't even know that eye drops were poisonous to the extent that they could kill you. I mean, I, I, I think a part of me knew that you should probably only use them on your eyes and not drink them. But the idea that someone could be use these as a murder weapon is so bizarre if that's in fact what occurred here. Do you think my question is. Is that bizarre theory so bizarre that it might be difficult for jurors to wrap their heads around? 
Yeah, I think so. And there are a lot of, a lot of moving parts uh, in this story. And as you said, deliberations will be uh, going on as this episode is released. Um, first of all, you're putting these eye drops into your eyeball, presumably, which is connected to your brain and goes into your bloodstream, which is odd. So I had no idea it was poisonous as well. But uh, this defendant, uh, Jesse, was taking care of this 62-year-old woman because she was in poor health. And basically, the state said, look, she took these eye drops and put them into water and killed her. Now, I've been covering a story um, on my channel, Surviving the Survivor, uh, Corey Richin. She's a mother in uh, the Salt Lake City area who wrote a children's book. Um, and she poised, she's accused of poisoning her husband, uh, Eric Richens, by giving him five times the lethal dose of fentanyl. So we know that this happens all the time. I mean, people do poison people, but I had absolutely no idea that Visine drops, like you said, could be used. And it's gonna be curious to see um, how the defense handles it. There were issues on both sides here, both with the defendant and uh, the victim here. The victim was you know, apparently um, in poor mental health, um, had some suicidal ideation. So this is, this is, you know, I would say she said, she said, one of them is obviously no longer with us. So it's going to be the believability of this defendant. Yeah, I, and I'm glad you brought that point up because I always feel like the prosecution really has their hands full when you can look at the facts and the evidence. And if that can reasonably lead you to the conclusion of, say, perhaps accidental death or even suicidal death, that's a real obstacle they're going to have to overcome. And in my view, at least from what we've heard so far, there is some reasonable conclusions that can be made. The idea that it shoot a bunch of pills were found there. The idea of this bizarre method of murder, if that's in fact what it was. Um, but there's this one element here that might be the clincher. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it is this financial motive. The idea that this wasn't just, if it was just the murder of this old woman, it would leave, I think, a lot of unanswered questions in jurors' minds. But you had that idea that there may have been this motive of financial gain into it. Do you think that might be enough to push them over the edge? Well, you know, money, basically sex and drugs, uh, any homicidal tech detective will tell you those are the three major motives. And there's um, $192,000 here at play, 290000 apologies. And um, that is obviously a big motivating factor uh, to commit a crime is to get this money. What's interesting is the defense has said that this woman was in very poor financial shape. Obviously she had $290,000. Uh, there was a safe that uh, this woman kept the money in some sort of safety deposit box. And the defendant, uh, Jesse, uh, when police were investigating, kind of gave her this roundabout story about where the safe was. So that raised eyebrows. She wasn't forthcoming with it. And then the defendant also has some very curious, as many people do uh, when they're committing crimes, Internet searches. Um, she was looking up, you know, how to commit suicide, because one of the allegations here is that she posed this crime scene to make it look like it was a suicide. So again, there's what appears to be circumstantial evidence, but not a whole lot of direct evidence. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be the credibility of this witness in the courtroom. What we were just talking about with the Adelson trial, something that, you know, you can only really judge, I think, very accurately when you're in there. 
Um, and that's what those jurors' jobs are, are going to be now to find out um, in their own minds if this is a woman who is capable of committing such a heinous crime. You're absolutely right. And that's what they're doing. Apparently, right now, we'll probably have a verdict on this case by next week. So we will continue to keep our eyes on that as well. Finally, we turn to Austin, Texas, where the murder trial for a yoga teacher turned fugitive continues as the state presents additional evidence implicating Caitlin Armstrong in the murder of her boyfriend's mistress. This week, the man at the center of the love triangle that left professional cyclist Mo Wilson dead took the stand in testimony that stretched over two days. Colin Strickland testified that he began a relationship with Wilson after he and Armstrong were on a quote-unquote break and continued to text and call Wilson after he reunited with Armstrong. According to his testimony, Strickland began using an alias for Wilson's contact after Armstrong asked her then-boyfriend to cease communications with Wilson. A lot going on here between these three. On cross-examination, Strickland claimed that he and Armstrong were not in a relationship at the time of Wilson's murder, despite the pair living in the same home, and that Armstrong was not aware that he had been with Wilson that day. A flood of damaging digital evidence allegedly tracking Armstrong after Wilson's fatal shooting was also presented in court, which included internet searches, we were just talking about this, for Mo Wilson's address, along with searches related to removing fingerprints and research on Wilson's murder. Also presented to the jury this week was a dramatic video where screaming can be heard, followed by three loud pops, which investigators identify as gunshots. We have that video that we can show to you now. Not a lot to be seen on there, but certainly um, disturbing audio. While Armstrong's defense has maintained that there is no direct evidence linking her to the killing, the circumstantial evidence in this case has been abundant. Armstrong's trial is ongoing and will continue to update you as it develops. All right, um, let's first, Joel, talk about this testimony of Colin Strickland. He's he's squarely in the middle of this whole love triangle turn murder situation. Um, but other than establishing the dynamics of the relationship between the three, I'm, I'm curious to what you think about if he actually moved the needle here. Um, or do you think it was enough just for him to to for the prosecution to present the dynamics of this relationship, showing that Armstrong at least had some animus towards Wilson? You know, I think it was probably effective in that way. Um, this is uh, what you call bad luck. Uh, this guy was caught in the middle um, of basically a woman who is the equivalent of Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction and another <laughs> innocent another innocent uh, woman named Mo Wilson. And he's in the middle of this. Um, you know, there's been video of him coming and going from court and you can tell the stress this guy is under. I mean, he's smashing uh, news cameras into the ground. Uh, he's not a very likable guy, and he might be brought up on some assault charges for that um, because that is just not cool in a word. Um, but you can tell the stress of this is getting to him. Um, so I don't think he's the most likable witness, but I think to your point, he does just kind of set the scene, if you will. He sets the table and says, look, I was with this woman, Caitlin Armstrong, and then I was with this woman, Mo Wilson. And even though he claims he wasn't with Caitlin Armstrong, they were living together 
And so it just shows this kind of crazy dynamic and then ultimately the presumption um, and the assumption and the state here uh, basically is saying that Caitlin Armstrong in essence snapped after finding this out and went and shot and killed Mo. So I don't know how valuable or invaluable his testimony is, but it definitely lets you know the dynamics of this, you know, love triangle. Yeah. Put, putting aside however people may feel about him, you got to admit this guy is having a horrible time that he's essentially being told, hey, we need you to come testify about what a creep you've been and how you were kind of running around on two different women and changing phone numbers and the names on phones um, and, you know, live, being supported by one of the women. And uh, by the way, all of that messiness likely led to this person's murder. Not not the greatest uh, light to be cast on him, uh, you know, being asked to testify in this case. In any case, um, let's talk a little bit about that video that we just watched. Now, it's it's chilling when you hear it. But again, my question is, do you think it really moves the needle? Because in my view, it may help pinpoint time of murder. It may help pinpoint location of murder, but does it help us pinpoint who is the murderer? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I think that human nature, um, people, whether they are directed by a judge or not to just look at the evidence, there's always going to be some sort of inherent curiosity um, dare I use the word bias. And so when you present a tactile video where you can hear gunshots and screaming, I think it's going to influence the jury and here all uh, indications point to this defendant, Caitlin Armstrong, as having been the trigger woman. And so I think psychologically on some level hearing this can only help the state. Um, and then again, there's also these internet searches that you just mentioned where Caitlin Armstrong is looking up, how do you remove fingerprints? Uh, she's researching murder. She's looking up Mo Wilson's address, not looking good for the defendant. And then there's just a general con uh, consciousness of guilt. I mean, she was on the run. So there's been a lot of behavior by her that isn't congruent with an innocent person. No, you're absolutely right. And I want to get into all of that, but you, you, reminded me of something that I think you're absolutely right for the prosecution to use this media, this videotape, even if it's not all that entirely helpful. I remember as a prosecutor, if I ever had video, audio, jailhouse recordings, pictures, anything that was helpful, even if it wasn't the strongest bit of, of evidence, I presented it because people want a presentation. They want worry. We live in a world where it's not just about listening to a witness. They want to see pictures. They want to hear audio. Every little thing adds a little bit of color. And I think you're absolutely right. It adds a visceral feeling to all of this. They're hearing, according to the prosecution, someone be murdered. That is that is like we said, chilling. And he's going to leave an impact on those jurors, even if it isn't exactly, you know, pushing the ball forward as far as innocence or guilt. But you bring me to my last point on this. In my view, this entire case, the strongest thing about it is her conduct afterwards. It's the running. It's the 
fleeing the country, using her sister's passport, plastic surgery. Add to that now these internet searches. And, and one of them is apparently a search on whether or not pineapple juice can remove fingerprints. And spoiler alert, no, it cannot. But it's just interesting that these folks cannot help themselves. Despite all the plans she put into place to try to get away with it, she can't help herself by looking into some of these things on the internet, which are going to come back to haunt her. What are your thoughts? Yeah, 100%. By the way, there's a dirty little secret in broadcast news. If you don't have video, you don't really have a story. So uh, <laughs> right. video is what makes the news in uh, in broadcast news. And so I, I think, you know, there is... Um, you know, a similar analogy to be made in the courtroom. I do think it helps to your point. But um, in terms of this kind of consciousness of guilt, we know she ran down to Costa Rica for 43 days before U.S. Marshals found her. And then we did a, a show recently on Survive and the Survivor. She had planned and exercised and, and worked diligently for weeks. She was exercising in her jail cell to try to escape again. She feigned um, some sort of ankle injury that required her to go to a doctor's office and Department of Corrections officials took her to this appointment and she tried to make a run for it. She was in shackles and in her um, jumpsuit, she had had some like thermal underwear on underneath. Somehow she managed to get out of one shackle and get her pants off while she was evading uh, law enforcement. They, you know, it was kind of humiliating for the DOC, but eventually after tripping a couple of times, they got, you know, they caught her, she didn't get too far, but again, um, you know, and I don't know if that is going to be admissible or not, but uh, it does for sure show consciousness of guilt or at the very least, she doesn't like being incarcerated. Oh, no, I think they've litigated this and I'm sure that I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, but I believe they litigated this and this is absolutely coming in as more consciousness of guilt. Like you said, people, it is it is reasonable to assume the people run when they know that they're guilty for something, even when they're already in custody. And yeah, there, it just says a lot about her psychologically, the way that she's hardwired. They, I, I, what do you call it? She's she is not risk adverse. The fact that she both would, you know, commit a murder, run to Costa Rica, and now try to run away again. She she definitely has has a a something. Something about her brain which makes her want to um, take part in these really dangerous uh, activities, including perhaps, uh, you know, we're going to find out murder. While this case is ongoing, we'll continue to follow it. Um, fascinating case, right? I mean, to me, it just the more you hear about it, the, the crazier it gets. Yeah, it's, it's wild. And, you know, I was just going to say, you know, just these cases we cover today, uh, Caitlin Armstrong and, and Charlie Adelson off the top, you know, if you just did things the right way, behave proper. Life is complicated enough, um, you know, just do the right thing. I mean, it's insane the lengths that people do go to to commit these crimes. And I'll tell you, we have former inmates on all the time on the show to talk about this. And one of the biggest deterrents in my somewhat rational mind is prison. Who the hell wants to go to prison? It'd be the scariest thing on earth. I was driving with my wife last night. And we just stopped for a second. And I encourage everyone to do this. What do you think Charlie Adelson's life is like right now? He's about to go yeah. to state prison for the rest of his life. He had everything, Ferraris, a dental practice, women, and he's given it all up for what? For what? It's insane. So I think we all get caught up and crazy and uh, take a breath sometimes. Do something <laughs> uh, 
proactive. Don't commit crimes. That's my message. <laughs> Great message. Go go meditate for a moment before you start to pull out the visine to go murder someone, I guess, is the, the moral of the story. Joel, thank you so much for coming on this week. This was an absolute pleasure. Where can people find out more about you and about your podcast? Yeah, well, thank you so much for asking, Josh. The podcast is Surviving the Survivor. Uh, it's anywhere you listen to podcasts on audio platforms. I think you'll love it. It's also a big YouTube channel, Surviving the Survivor. And believe it or not, I've written um, a biography about my mother with the same title as a podcast, Surviving the Survivor. Uh, she has a fascinating life story, a Holocaust survivor. She lost a child. Um, and she's one of the most optimistic, powerful, empowering people you will ever meet. The book will be out for pre-orders come January, and I'll let you know about that, Josh. Uh, the book is out on Father's Day. So, uh, And we have an amazing community, a really amazing community called STS Nation. So check us out. I think you'll love it, and I appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. Fantastic, and congratulations on the book. That's very cool. Looking forward to reading it. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.